Uh, hi everyone, uh, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. This is Andy. Uh, this time we're trying a new combination, I guess. Uh, there's no J this time. Uh, this was not planned, it was just, you know, we're three busy people. Uh, Tammy is here today. Um, how's it going, Tammy? Hey, I'm and, good. And we have a guest, uh, his name is Asmat Al-Halabi. Asmat, thanks for coming on today. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, so quick background, Asmat is a, currently, he's a historian of the Middle East, of Palestine, um, and Global Asia. Uh, he is a postdoc right now at UC Davis, and he's about to join the University of Toronto next year. Um, so we obviously wanted to talk to him today as sort of a, I guess, a sequel or unofficial sequel or part of a, a two-part conversation this week about, you know, what's going on today. Uh, right now in, you know, this last month in Gaza and Palestine, um, you know, continuing our conversation with Josh from Tuesday. Um, really quickly, just to give you a sense of, um, you know, where we are, it's Thursday evening, about three or four hours ago, a ceasefire was called. Uh, between the Israeli government and, and Hamas in Gaza. Uh, I guess the U.S. was involved, the Egyptian government was involved. And that puts an end to, uh, this is all from the BBC, about 10 days worth of fighting. 232 Palestinians were killed. Um, 11 people in Israel were killed. In Gaza, um, 91,000 people were displaced and 16,000 housing units have been damaged. And, you know, we'll see where things go from there. Um, but, you know, just to give a context of you know, the, the, what's going on right now as we conduct this interview. Asma, welcome again. We're really excited to have you. Um, we thought we'd start with just with a little bit of background. So we know that you're in California right now. I see the sun pouring through your apartment. <laughs> um, but where'd you come from? Where'd you grow up? How'd you get into this work? Um, I know that um, you have some family ties to the region that we're talking about, too. So if you could tell us about that, that'd be great. Um, thank you, Tammy, for that question. Thank you, Andrew, uh, for the intro. Um, yeah, I'm in California now. I grew up in California, in San Diego, and uh, I, um, you know, born and raised there, basically to uh, Palestinian parents uh, from Gaza, and uh, you know, that's always been an uh, important part of why I think about history and so on. And, you know, I always joke actually with people that like, if I ever write a memoir, which I will never do, uh, <laughs> I'll do some like thing about like Gaza and San Diego being like the same latitude <laughs> or whatever. And you can start there and it's like the sea and the sun, but actually the much more relevant thing, I think in terms of my thinking is the like militarized landscape of Gaza. And, you know, the border with Mexico there, I think is like the busiest border on the planet uh, the landscape yeah. of San Diego is just covered with military bases totally. and military people and the kind of infrastructure that that uh, requires. So I think that's been pretty crucial um, in developing my thinking about things in Palestine and elsewhere. Mm. So then how have, how has the what is what has the experience been like the last I guess month or so starting with uh the, I guess like I don't know like tensions or um violence starting in East Jerusalem and then kind of especially the last 10 days in Gaza what is that like for you because I know you still have family still in Palestine right like I guess there's you know lots of WhatsApp and lots of emailing um, what is that like for you I mean it's been it's been rough it's been pretty uh <clears throat> difficult I think um Ismail Nashif, this uh, 
Palestinian anthropologist. He has a great line in a book he wrote uh, maybe 10 years ago about like political, Palestinian political prisoners. He writes that moments of heightened intensity, especially right after assassinations by air raids, when Palestinian bodies are turned to ash and televised, the Palestinian collectivity oscillates between total insecurity and total oneness. And I've thought about that mm. quotation uh, a lot uh, the last few weeks. I mean, it really captures precisely what I've been feeling, what a lot of my friends have been feeling, my family have been feeling. And, you know, I'm, you know, I'm pretty lousy uh, at WhatsApp and stuff. And in any case, it's hard <laughs> to, like, have, like, you know, each individual family member in Gaza or in Palestine to like text every other family member. So usually, you know, I usually just talk to my mom, like, see, what'd you hear? Like uh -huh. in that sort of way, just to, so I'm not, uh, you know, uh, keeping up with the, with the messages. Yeah. But, yeah. um, you know, it's pretty horrific, uh, to see, uh, Gaza bombed in the way that it is. I, I mean, I don't know that it's, I've been racking my brain about this cause, uh, you know, of course, there's mass suffering around the world because of governments and corporations and all these sorts of things, and there's endless violence. But it strikes me there's no other place on Earth that's bombed in the way that Gaza is bombed, right? This kind of regular, inhumane series of bombs. And, of course, Southeast Asia was bombed in a similar way some decades ago. Certainly, we can talk about Beirut or Baghdad at the beginning of the millennium. But, like this kind of ridiculous thing that's almost impossible to witness of these bombs like hitting these dense neighborhoods. And it's not the first time you've seen it. It's not even the second time you've seen it. And you're not yeah. even there, right? Yeah. Um, and so it's pretty pretty striking. And uh, is, hmm. is it, is there, do you have a sense, is there a sense of like, on the one hand, you're, you want to look because, you know, these are your friends and family, but on the other hand, you're afraid of what you might see? Do you, I mean, is that, what, how, do you, how do you kind of decide how much you want to look at uh, footage and coverage of all that. I mean, it's it's hard to look away. I think. I mean, I remember um, in 2014, I was I happened to be like uh, on like a language program thing. Like I was in a dormitory in like Madison, Wisconsin. <laughs> I landed there and I was like totally alone. First of all, I land like in midnight and there's like a, a tornado warning or something. I'm like, what the hell? I've never heard of a tornado warning and like people are running around the halls and then like. The next day, like, uh, the bombing of Gaza commences that summer, and I'm, like, on my phone, you know, for the next month, basically, uh, as the news pours in. So I think there's just sort of no way to look away. Um, and, uh, yeah. you know, you just kind of... I don't know, I don't know that other people uh, who aren't Palestinian or who aren't from Gaza certainly aren't Palestinian have the same experience. I mean, it's certainly, it's just like, it might just be another thing in the news, uh, which it certainly is, but it's like, there's no, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's hard to watch. Yeah. Did, out of curiosity, how often had you, had you gone like as a child or young adult and how many, is the majority of your extended family still there or are they also kind of like spread around the world in the U S and the Middle East? I didn't go often growing up. I, in fact, I only went to Reza once, uh, right after uh, the Oslo Accords, when it became uh, possible for some uh, Palestinians like ninety four, ninety five ish. Egypt. 
yeah, I was like three years old or four okay. years old. Yeah. It was like, Make us feel terrible. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I'm like, maybe I was older. No, I, it was, uh, yeah, I, I was a little kid. I mean, I only have sort of sporadic memories. And, um, you know, Palestinians from Gaza at that time could move back. Palestinians from Gaza who were in Egypt uh, could move back uh, at that point. The border was open uh, in some kind of way for a few years. Uh, and so I remember going, it was a trip. I mean, those settlers were still there. I remember seeing that. I remember the checkpoints. Um, but, uh, you know, later when I was older, I went to the West Bank and I went to 48 Palestine or Israel. And, uh, that was, that was another experience. But of course, at that point I had been reading about Palestine and involved in protests and organizing and stuff for, for years. So um, it was a different kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I know a lot of people, uh, you know, think it's really important to go. Um, and certainly it can be important. But, um, you know, the important, the more important thing to remember, and this is something that was lost uh, with Oslo and with the sort of like desire for this kind of a uh, little fake state was the extent to which most Palestinians uh, or a large portion of Palestinians are not um, in the West Bank uh, or Gaza, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And mm. many of them are in refugee camps in Arab states or they're all over the world. Yeah. You know what I mean? I got, it's like, you got yeah. family everywhere. You're Palestinian, you got homies all over <laughs> Latin America, all over Asia, you know, it's always like my grandpa's always talking about, you know, his cousin in China. He's like, he's in China. He's buried in China. I'm like, yeah, you know, there's a lot really. Of why, wow. why are they? <laughs> wait, why are they? That's amazing. How did they wind up in China? Uh, I can't even remember the story. I think there's there's a good number of Palestinians uh, in China. I mean, oh, like okay. uh, businessmen, kind of like small business or import export kind of thing <laughs> is what I imagine. But some of them, yeah, yeah like we did that Chinese, <laughs> you know. So. Uh, there's just Palestinians everywhere. You know, it's also yeah. like going to different countries. They, you know, they have uh, advanced degrees and things because you need to like get student visas and that's an easy way to stay in a country or just do another degree or whatever. <laughs> yeah, so it's totally. like, there's a lot of, it's a, it's a like interesting kind of uh, diaspora. Yeah. So were you doing Chinese language study in Michigan then? I wasn't. No, <laughs> I was studying Urdu, but I, I've always wanted to and I, it was a missed opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> nah, you're better off without it. <laughs> uh, so maybe we could just kind of, you know, do you have any, do you have any like hot takes about the last month or, or maybe just uh, one thing, you know, we, we talked about was you feel like the U S media and we can talk about specific publications, maybe or institutions or you know the government or whatever. Uh, they are really not telling the full story of what you think is happening. And uh, so I want, I want to hear like your thoughts on what exactly, you know, for our listeners, what exactly is, is are we missing by just reading, you know, the New York Times, BBC or whatever. Um, and, and beyond that, well, yeah, let's just start there. I, that might be a good way to begin it. Yeah, I mean, people, I think, um, this is a classic thing, of course, and Palestine isn't unique in sort of not being uh, well represented. Uh, it's maybe egregious the the how badly represented it is um but a lot of the world uh and its struggles are not 
well represented, I think, in the BBC or CNN or whatever. But in any case, I've been following, you know, pretty closely what's been happening uh, in Palestine and the Fezzan in particular in the last few days. Um, and of course, there are a lot of people in Gaza who are speaking to the media, right? There are a lot of people who know English very well and very capable about uh, to speak to, you know, the international uh, media. But what's remarkable and what they've complained about on Twitter and other places is the extent to which um, the substantive content of what they're saying is undercut, right, uh, by the news, right? It's either... Uh, cut out simply because of room or time or whatever, or their testimony is undercut by the framing of the story, yeah. right? Or the or interview with an Israeli official who, you know, peddles some lie or whatever. And, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, people that you could listen to. Maybe I could send links or whatever uh, on Twitter and other places. There have been a huge amount of, like, online teach-ins and stuff. I've been very impressed mm. by some of my friends and colleagues with the speed and uh, passion they've been able to organize these things that have been extremely helpful. But really at the heart of the problem is the framing. And, you know, we can get in the details of what's happening in Gaza uh, in a second. Or maybe I should get to it now. I mean, yeah. the, the facts on the ground, we're talking about, like, the destruction of the Gaza Strip's infrastructure, right? Not for the first time. Murder by bombs of whole families, right, at night, uh, sheer terror by Israel's own accounts, right? And these accounts, these attacks on infrastructure, right, have also been attacks on, you know, the very small manufacturing sector in Gaza, right? Just today, of course, this always happens on the eve of ceasefires. There's just the, the intensity of Israel's bombing in every case has always been uh, higher. So I was reading today about one of the only factories that produces construction materials. More than 80% mm -hmm. of the water and sewage pipes in Gaza produced in this factory was destroyed, along with other factories right. uh, in the area. Some 450 buildings total, including six hospitals, other health care facilities have been destroyed uh, or damaged and so on, right? And, you know, you've also seen Palestinians in Gaza talk about, like, the experience of the bombing. And this, this started immediately, and you started seeing people talking about, like, how the whole ground shakes, right? And I remember my family telling me that, like, they've never been this scared, right? There was the intensity of the, like, bombing was different. And imagine, these are people who have lived through more than one of these uh, attacks. Right? And you saw all over Twitter mm -hmm. and elsewhere people talking about, you know, the way that the bombs felt like earthquakes, right? And, and that you know, the ground shook every time uh, these missiles um, hit the ground, right? And you could tell some people were, like, seeing, you know, these bombs, the, like, the, how they look. They have these very particular kind of, like, uh, wings. They're probably these Boeing, like, JBU-39 small diameter bombs. And I was looking on the advertising material for Boeing for these particular small diameter bombs, which are these bunker buster bombs. And their advertising is like, well, you know, we have... Um, because of the small diameter, you can you can carry four instead of two <laughs> on each flight, so you, it's more yeah. efficient, right? It's not as if the Israelis don't have like hella F thirty fives to yeah. carry these bombs, but you know the extent to which they can carry even more mm -hmm. uh, since they have um, yeah 
these kinds of bombs. And, you know, it's funny at the time that all this is happening, of course, I was doing my taxes uh, last minute. <laughs> and uh, Edward Said said uh, back in the day something about like how he's a Palestinian and an American. Right. And this offers him an odd, not to say grotesque, double perspective. And I think this grotesque character of our condition, Palestinians in the United States, is really important. You know, in the midst of all this yeah. carnage, you're paying these taxes or whatever. You're, you're actively yeah. involved in this like American project. Yeah. All these wow. taxes are going to Boeing, to Lockheed Martin, General Dynamics, to Raytheon and so on to bomb Palestine. Right. And it's it's grotesque. There's no other word for it. Um, but um, of course, Palestinians in the U.S., like Palestinians across Palestine and the Middle East and the world, have always been involved, still speaking up against this kind of stuff, right? But mm. still doesn't make it any sort of easier. In any yeah. case, wow. Um, so in terms of the media framing, yes. Yeah, so uh, no, go on. Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing, so, you know, you can, some people certainly, I don't know how much of this stuff gets in, uh, like, CNN uh, or whatever. I, you know, they're, like, flashes of, like, articles I see, besides the op-eds, are, like, you know, everything is Hamas, Israel, whatever. I, you know, I don't read these articles. For, for years now, I've sort of, like, totally refused to engage uh, that news, Um but in the end, all this stuff that I've described can't even be sort of like uttered in these new sources in part because of the problems with the framing, a perennial problem. And the pervasive thing in the last decade or more than a decade now, since 2007 or eight, when uh, the blockade in Gaza began after Hamas won the Palestinian legislative elections, right, is that Always, there's no, it's not a reference first to Gaza or Palestinians, right? It's a reference to Hamas, right? It's a Hamas-Israeli yeah. conflict. It's a war between Hamas and Israel. And you have to reject, I think, categorically this kind of framing everywhere. And um, because it simply, it simply doesn't speak to the reality, right? And it, and, it, and it goes up to the same sort of stuff about conflict and war. And mm. it's tied in to a much older thing, which is to refer to Palestinians, to Arabs, always to Muslims as terrorists, right? And it's a deeply reactionary thing, and it's backed up by all kinds of spurious social science and terrorology, right? And it's, and it's anti-historical. Mm. And um, that anti-historical element, I think, is crucial. Maybe I can talk about the history. Uh, yeah, but I mean, maybe just to kind of more spell this out more. So you're saying that the framing is always... What, what's the motivation between framing as U.S. Hamas? Because they want to portray Hamas as like a terrorist group? Um, or is it about, quote-unquote, state-to-state or institution-to-institution relations? Or what, what do you think the motivation is in that framing? And like, what would you frame it as instead? I mean, I would frame it as you know, another Israeli massacre in Gaza, right? Another Israeli bombing campaign on a besieged people uh, that besieged by the same people that are bombing them. Right. The, the war has already be begun. It happened, you know, it began a long time ago. And the latest front in that war was the siege and the blockade where people in Gaza can't leave uh, with any ease. Essentially, they can't. Uh, the imports and exports are totally uh, restricted. 
uh, I mean, the borders are closed. This is this is already uh, an act of war, right? And then you come at it as if it's just some suddenly out of nowhere. There's some conflict between something called Hamas, this specter of Muslim terrorism, and Israel, which is just a proper uh, state, just happens to be one of the most technologically advanced, uh, powerful armies on planet Earth, right? And so when it's Hamas-Israel, it's as if, oh, well, just like another war all over the yeah. planet, right? Not saying that any other war is particularly symmetrical. Right, yeah. Right? Of course, you know, sure. you're not talking, yeah. the Iraq war is also the U.S.'s massacre of Iraqis, right? That's also uh, the case. Um, but it's, uh, the framing is a huge problem. And, mm-hmm. and it's also, it's about dehumanization, right? It's not state-state or whatever. It's also, well, if, if it's just Hamas, if these are, you know, civilians or Hamas and, and human shields or whatever kind of like, you know, yeah. bullshit they peddle, that's, uh, that makes it easier to uh, swallow, I think. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, I had a question, too, about what you were saying with regards to your Gazan family saying that this feels different. Like it feels like a, a kind of violence that is is so intense and sort of new in that sense. Um, I was wondering if you could just say a couple words about like what exactly they mean by that, because I think on the other side too, um, and I think we'll talk about this more. Um, there's a lot of people saying this also feels different, you know, to the extent that the world <laughs> thinks it's different. The world feels differently seeing what Israel is doing. So I think on on both sides there's this like new kind of analysis or, you know, sort of vision of what's going on. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a really uh, interesting parallel. As you were asking the question, I really, um, you know, th- that is that is certainly striking. And I don't know if I necessarily have an answer to that. Certainly we'll know in due time what was different in terms of the bombing uh, of Gaza this time, if there were different sorts of weapons or how... Uh, things went along. People are generally good. Palestinians and their uh, supporters are generally good about trying to, you know, get to the bottom of what happens. Um, so I don't know that I could really speak about what, what actually is happening that's different. It's also, um, of course, uh, the same in many ways in the sense that uh, in previous assaults on Gaza of this kind, uh, since um, the settlers, uh, Israeli settlers, were removed uh, in 2005, I think it was, or whenever it was. Uh, so in 08 and in 2014, um, it was the same sort of thing. Whole families were destroyed, the infrastructure was destroyed, the city was devastated, and the justification was Hamas. Right. Yeah. So it's also it's it's different and people are telling you it's different uh, on the phone and you can certainly see the images. Maybe now that also our cameras are like more high def and also, you know, it's been in generally uh, intense year of witnessing all sorts of horrific yeah. things. I mean, this is another thing that I, that I haven't even mentioned, the, the extent to which you're bombing a besieged people. Right. Sending all these people to the hospital, destroying hospitals. There's a global pandemic, right? That is on top of all this thing, right? That there's also surge after surge, a hardly vaccinated uh, population. And, totally. you know, you're bombing these people indiscriminately, 
right? And um, although I should say, this is one thing, Amir Haas, the great sort of Israeli yeah. muckraker, uh, reminded us today or yesterday the, about the fact that since uh, Oslo, at least, um, the Israelis have had registries of the population in Gaza. They know where people live and they know where the children live, right? And so when they say, oh, we're not, we're just bombing fighters. Oh, we hit the houses, you know, there was collateral damage, but they know exactly where everyone is, right? And oh, yeah. when these people yeah. are dying, this is not, um, this is intentional terror uh, mm-hmm. as they freely admit. Um, so that's, I think, important to remember. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this question of the technology, The question, I mean, what you're kind of stressing is not so much, oh, was it new or not, but more that those conversations are not even allowed because of the framing, right? Like, Totally. That, you know, know. It's not even coming up, right? Yeah. You have, it's Maybe it is. I mean, to be honest, I'm not reading this stuff in part because <laughs> I've read it enough times. I saw someone today from MIT was like, oh, we did a deep computer search, like some kind of social scientific thing of like 30,000 articles in the New York Times about Palestine and Israel. And we, and we proved that it is like really deeply uh, um, biased or something. I was like, man, this is incredible. Science is so amazing. You could have literally asked me or anyone else. <laughs> I told you, you would have saved so much energy and computer time. But you know, now there's... Uh, whatever there's a there's the numbers are there, but yeah. you know another reason I think it's important to talk about um, the weapons and, and this has come up now that uh, Sanders and other people it just happened to coincide right uh, with the um, with the um, this this particular missile uh, extra funding that Israel gets yeah. in part because of uh, Iron Dome happen to be going through Congress uh, now. And uh, so people have been paying a little closer attention to the extent to which this is like a totally uh, intertwined system, right? Yeah. And maybe I could talk more about that later, but... I mean, um, we could just jump into it now. Do you feel like, to kind of pick up where Tammy was asking, do you feel like there's been a shift in uh, the outside world, like the United States... Uh, in terms of, because this has been remarked upon a lot, uh, including you know one of those people, one of those people you don't read, Nicholas Kristof today, wrote an op-ed for the Times where, and he's like good as a bellwether for like the institutions, and not necessarily like we trust this guy, right? Yeah. But but even if even Kristof is saying this, right? Maybe that means something that um, there's actually questioning of USAID to Israel, and there's actually um, you know polls show that increasingly the general population and especially probably liberal Democrat voters, younger voters are feeling more sympathy towards the Palestinian people. Do you feel like, do you feel that at all? Um, in, in let's say compared to 2014 or, you know, the previous times, um, you know, Gaza has been in the news in the U S. Yeah. I mean, I think it'll take a little bit of time, uh, to feel it. I mean, it used to be, it was easy to know, uh, who hated you because you'd be at like demonstrations and people would be flipping you off or like trying to run you down or whatever. So now that there's sort of less human to human interaction and it's just like the anonymous internet uh, haters who may or may not speak up, you don't know like exactly what the general (laughs) feel is. Certainly there's polls and things, but I think it takes time to register a shift 
for sure. But before we get into the U.S., I should say that internationally, Palestinians have always been supported, right? And in many countries around the world, uh, especially in the third world, in the global south, right? So we can certainly talk about the U.S. and a shift taking place in the U.S., but that's just one particular place that has that has a unique relationship uh, with Israel. Um, but in general, I think international opinion has been on the side of Palestinians. Now, that's kind of shifting in certain places. In India, of course, the rise yeah. of the right has occasioned <laughs> yeah. also a huge rise of support on the part of uh, the Indian public for Israel, which was not previously uh, the case, at least not yeah. uh, explicitly so. So there, there are certainly exceptions, but I think that's important to note that uh, the world uh, in many ways has been on the side of the Palestinians for a long time, certainly the colonized world. And we can get into that, is that maybe later. I mean, it's really just to bracket, is that, that like the 60s, kind of that kind of 50s, 60s kind of moment? or Even before, I mean, if you look at, you know, during the period of the UN debates, you know, India, of course, was against partition of Palestine and voted against in a lot of countries. At that point, of course, the UN was much smaller uh, a lot of countries were opposed to uh, partition, uh, the partition of Palestine, right? Which they understood totally as a colonial project. Yeah. Right? That was just being sort of rubber stamped by this new uh, imperial institution, the United Nations. And yeah. in the UN, of course, it hasn't been effective, uh, very effective at all. You've had, you know, there are tons and tons, of course, and, and you talk to Palestinians, some of them will rehearse these, like, UN uh, General Assembly uh, resolutions to you, right? And, the, 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 you know, the extent to which Israel is violating these General Assembly yeah. resolutions, which, of course, are non-binding, but they, are, they have been passed by the General Assembly, which is the, the world, right? But it is the Security Council in the U.S. especially that has blocked sort of international... Mm -hmm. um, change in Israel in that, in that theater. Yeah. Um, we should also just note how visionary India was during that period, I think, because they also played the exact same role protesting the partition of Korea a few yeah. years later. I mean, huh. they just really got it the whole time. Wait. That this was the blueprint that was being established and that it would hurt them too, you know? Wait. And we saw that. So, you know, I think, um, anyway. No, I, I should know in, this because I, I, you know, I work on India Technically, but they were against partition everywhere else. But <laughs> I mean, well, Nehru, of course, was, I mean, was against partition of India. Yeah, this was, this yeah. was a Nehru was saw a, the pattern, I see, you I know, see. and so, was worried so for, for him, it, for them, it was all interlinked. It was like against, oh yeah, against, oh, absolutely. Okay, okay. And he wrote about that and talked about that. Oh, okay, and people were mad. Like, I mean, India played a huge role. People are writing about, for example, in in calling out apartheid South Africa at the UN and other international forms for uh, racial discrimination. And they played a huge role in the decolonization of Indonesia. Um, but of yeah. course, and I should, you know, I'm, I'm study this stuff and write about this kind of internationalism and stuff, but all of it, I think, should be um, measured, I think, where we should be measured in our praise of it, because we should also note that you know, post-colonial India was also a place that was trying to maintain British Indian borders, right? Yeah. And that meant, uh, you know, police action in Hyderabad, continued occupation of Kashmir, all sorts of uh, violence 
in the Northeast, right? The, the, our histories of internationalism, I think, are always going need to be tempered sure, by course, like yeah. what is going on in the nation. What the communists in Egypt think of Nasser, what the communists in India think of Nehru is going to be a different story, right? And what, yeah. how Kashmiris relate to Palestine is different from how uh, Nehru was also uh, Kashmiri, I guess technically, but you know, how, but you know how, yeah. how how Indian how the Indian state. No, I think that's really India. fair. Yeah, and I think anytime we get too excited about, you know, a national leader or a nation state <laughs> making a certain decision or intervention of this sort, we should, you know, yeah. temper it a bit. I mean, it's Except, a major struggle but, in, my, in my thing. Of course, now things are so <laughs> shitty that it's like, all right, well, at least this Well, that's the thing, like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you read those Nehru comments and you're just like, damn, we had only listened to that. <laughs> well, <laughs> anyway. The thing I think was all those guys is they were like mad smart. I mean, certainly smarter than us. I mean, they were like real serious <laughs> polymaths. And like, yeah, you know, yeah. if you look to an earlier period, now, of course, these people, they're professional politicians. That's they're right, like, yeah. you know, or they're worse than that. They're like professional sort of, I don't know what Trump and Modi are, but like you know, they're just sort of like demagogues. Right. It used to be, you know, it was like there was there was they they were intellectuals. They were also you some know, of them for sure violent, yeah. but like there was there was a lot there. Yeah, so, yeah. Well, we now we have Sanders. No, just kidding. Yeah. Right. <laughs> no, I mean, I think yeah, I think that's true. I appreciated his speech, although yeah, he did go into the whole like Hamas is a terrorist organization thing. Oh, but other than uh, that, I think he did. He did quite a service on the Senate floor overall. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, Asma, you're kind of saying that of all, well, not the whole world necessarily, but relatively speaking around the world, the U.S. has always been obviously like the one that was most hostile to the Palestinian cause and, you know, uh, sort of unconditional allies with um, the Israeli state. My understanding is that this really begins with the Six-Day War in the 60s, right? And then all the way up until now, it's like... Um, uh, you know, it's been this kind of unbreakable bond that maybe, you know, people are speculating um, is beginning to fray. Do you want to, you said, you, you earlier you kind of wanted to talk about um, that relationship. And I guess one, one extension of that is, you know, is, is getting the United States government to change its position almost sort of like the most important uh, in terms of, you know, if the United States somehow reduces its support for Israeli apartheid, somehow maybe pe- put, people put pressure on the United States government and so on. Is that, is that like the strategic, should that be like the kind of strategic target of demands for, on behalf of the Palestinian people? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, I think it's, it's certainly important for Americans to do that. Um, but I think Palestinians need to draw on the world. And part of that means that the extent to which Palestine can't be separated from other struggles around the world. I mean, if you don't have the support of the Arab states that surround uh, you, your fellow Arabs on the, in the case of Palestinians, and they do have the support of the people uh, to a large extent, but most of the governments today are essentially pro-Israeli. Right, yeah. Then, you know, the Palestinians uh, have a much harder chance. So part of it, you know, the Palestinian revolution... Uh, was meant to be an Arab revolution. And that was part of the reason that a lot of Arab states, uh, you know, were had problems with the Fedayeen and Arafat and the PLO, right? Because they, they this was dis- destabilizing their own regimes, right? Uh, so I think that's an important thing. I mean, I think there's not going to be uh, liberation in Palestine without uh, revolutions 
all over the Middle East. And, um, but I think all that is, is very possible. Mm-hmm. The U.S. case, of course, there's, it's, there's something you can say winning over, right? You can talk about winning over the Americans, but I think what really we need to talk about is forcing uh, the United States into a different yeah. uh, position. And that, you know, that can be ending aid, certainly, but, you know, however exorbitant the aid is, it's nothing compared, of course, to the amount of money Israel spends on these wars and the amount of money it spends on its military. That aid is basically subsidies for American defense companies, so-called defense right, companies, yeah. right? The arms industry. It's, uh, at the end of the day, you need sanctions, right? Real thing, you need to stop selling arms to Israel in the first place. Then they need to scramble and they need to figure out a way to build more F-35s locally or they need to buy them from somewhere else or buy Saudi uh, planes that the Saudis bought from the U.S. or whatever whatever ends up happening. So um, that's, I think, an important thing that needs to take place. We need to, for sure, end aid tomorrow. I think that has been uh, uh, one potential shift um, in the American political thing. I think this is what Christoph was trying to say in his article where he's also basically <laughs> shitting on Palestinians and, uh, and Arabs in general, uh, <laughs> that there is this shift uh, in people talking about the aid. And he used to get like hella emails if he mentioned anything about it. And now he gets less. Sure. I mean, that's that's definitely that's one like that's one, one data more. point. Yeah, that's one data point. Exactly. Maybe people don't read them as much anymore. Is why my thing yeah. also. Or the people that were reading them are now dead. And so it's like there's also another thing. So, I mean, I, you know, Christoph, yeah. I was, you know, I was reading some. Uh, op-eds like from the early 2000s I think from by Edward Said he used to write pretty prolifically every couple weeks an op-ed uh, maybe every week and you know he's talking about like you know prominent American intellectuals and stuff not necessarily intellectuals people in public he's like Thomas Friedman and these guys and I'm like does yeah, anyone yeah. read these people anymore and sometimes right, yeah. I forget that maybe people do yeah. uh, I just like don't read it at all so it's uh, I miss it but I just assume the worst basically and it seems to yeah. be the case that maybe the worst is now <laughs> slightly better yeah um, which is not going to be enough yeah uh, you mentioned sanctions we were one thing that um, seems to have come up is you know, if there is a change of public opinion, um, there's like different theories for why that change of public opinion might be. And one is the BDS, um, you know, boycott, divest, sanction, um, I guess, pledge or movement starting in 2005. Um, other theories are like uh, people are making more connections, comparative connections, like you were just saying, like the, 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 the plight of the Palestinian people is similar to, you know, the plight of like, you know, uh, black Americans and BLM and 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 that comparison, um, and then just going back to what you were saying at the very beginning, like, and I we probably should have addressed this earlier. You know, maybe just like social media. I don't want to be like a tech fetishist, right? But it does kind of matter that uh, maybe some of this imagery can make a breakthrough through non corporate media. Um, I don't do any of these theories kind of sound plausible to you as reasons for why um, people's opinions might have been changing over the last ten plus years. Yeah, I mean, I think all that stuff uh, is a factor. I'm not like a social scientist and, you know, yeah. not that they tell the truth at all, but I'm also, <laughs> you know, I, I, I think a lot about, you know, I think the shift, uh, you can certainly see, let's go back. I mean, one one thing that took place 
that is major was the disappearance of uh, a certain kind of internationalism uh, in the 80s and certainly by the 90s and with Oslo almost yeah. entirely. For a long time, the connections with, between Palestine and other struggles around the world, Palestine and black liberation in the United States, Palestine and Vietnam, uh, and so on, was precisely what got people to support the Palestinian cause and precisely the sort of thing that uh, helped Palestinians along uh, for a while, brought them into um, public consciousness all over the world. Precisely a recognition of their shared conditions, right? And um, Oslo, by nationalizing uh, this thing, territorializing the Palestinian movement to such an extent, basically disappearing the refugees and the diaspora, um, and the exiles. Wait, clarify, of, how did it do that? How did it do that? How did the Oslo Accords do that? Well, there was a decision made basically on a, by the uh, Palestinian leadership um, to accept what was essentially the worst uh, deal they'd ever been handed, uh, that they would get some limited sovereignty in Gaza and the West Bank, uh, in exchange for ending their struggle for actual freedom and um, and the right of return and the status of Jerusalem, all these things that were then term, termed uh, permanent status negotiations, things that were going to take place after the Oslo Accords, the sort of peace process of the 90s that culminates in uh, the second of the father, because none of this stuff, of course, uh, ends, but comes to uh, fruition. But there was basically a decision made, and everyone, I think, at this point agrees that it was a uh, bad one, although its institutions and its infrastructure, especially the infrastructure of the Palestinian Authority security apparatus, which basically administers the occupation for Israel in the West Bank, uh, still exists. And for a while, you know, it would be difficult, I think, to build... Uh, mass movement on the basis of the activity of Palestinians around the world, in the Arab world, and further along. And I think with the recognition, after the Second Intifada is when you get the emergence of a lot more different groupings and attempts to rebuild uh, Palestinian consciousness in the national movement uh, worldwide. Part of that is... Uh, BDS, Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions, right, which, is, which starts in 2005, which we need to understand as uh, one um, tactic, right, in what is a much larger movement. And it's one that's inspired by South Africa. It draws mm -hmm. quite explicitly on this analogy with apartheid in South Africa, uh, sometimes successfully, sometimes less so, right? And... Uh, it's been an important movement, but it's not been alone, right? And a lot of things that emerged after uh, the Second Intifada are important, including the kind of uh, organizing that took place among Palestinian youth, what started out in 2006 as the Palestine Youth Network and then became Palestine Youth Movement, uh, which was a kind of attempt to bring Palestinians together across the diaspora, a thing called uh, the Civitas Report, which is now sort of forgotten, which was also started, I think, in 2005, but then released in 2006, which was an attempt to sort of gauge 
the opinions of Palestinians around the world uh, and had concluded, you know, with an attempt to restart uh, democratic Palestinian institutions, which included Palestinians from all over the world, rather than just this kind of like mini fake non-sovereign state in the West Bank and Gaza. Uh, So all these things are taking place, right, in addition to BDS, which I think are important to recognize if you're going to historicize the present moment, which I think is particularly important because you do see the uh, resurgence of interest in um, these kind of international connections and comparisons, which I think are really, really important uh, as we move along and in general for thinking historically. I mean, it kind of sounds like what you're saying is like, we shouldn't get so... As as Americans, we shouldn't get so self-involved and think like Americans... (laughs) are the key to all this um, and that we should look at all this. Well, Americans are the the problem, for sure, but they're certainly not the solution, I think, is the thing. I mean, uh, I think that's like the... That's helpful. I mean, it's like... uh, I was reading... There's a a great recent book. It's a straightforward history book by this guy, Michael Fishbach, who writes a lot of books about Palestine, called The Movement in the Middle East. He writes about sort of... I think it's a helpful book he looks. He wrote another book about like black power in Palestine. So this is like looking at the whites and American Jews uh, specifically. And he, you know, he talks about like one of the guys in the Weather Underground who is like selling the Israel bonds, two thousand dollars worth of Israel bombs he was given on his bar mitzvah, selling them and then giving half to the Black Panther Party and half to the Weather Underground to use. And I'm like, well, this is, you know, this is an incredible history. This is like really deep stuff from a period when anti-imperialism and internationalism were key components of the U.S. left's understanding. Yeah. And of course, there was a huge backlash to that sort of thing. Michael yeah. Walter is sort of the, the like most, the biggest sort of representative of that backlash when him and Marty Perez write this essay, I think in 67 itself called Israel is not Vietnam, right? They write this thing. They recognize that people are making these connections about Israel and the mm. Vietnam War, their anti-war. And they're like, no, 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 um, that's not the case. And I think Walter's basically been making that argument since then. Uh, mm. Yeah, something you were talking about, you know, we were dis- discussing beforehand was you wanted to kind of maybe point out a blind spot in the U.S. left towards Palestine and how the so-called social democratic left, right, had, you feel like has long been, it's been a blind spot, I guess, is it, sort of their loyalty to Israel. Um, and, I mean, is that something you wanted to kind of uh, expand yeah, upon? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I, I when I was writing that, I think I was probably just thinking about it a lot. I don't want to dwell on it too much in part because, you know, they've they've gotten better maybe. And uh, that that's certainly important. It used to be... Uh, dissent was like you know the worst place they, they, they published the worst stuff about palestinians like endless like uh pablum and now you know i published a piece there years ago on about like anwa or whatever not to know you know it was controversial i think among the people at dissent uh i heard one member of the editorial board immediately resigned upon seeing it but uh oh, wow. that was that that they have certainly changed since the early yeah. how days, you know what I mean? Where it was the like the staff so, there are quite good and quite international in their thinking. Yeah, now there's like down people. Even the New Republic, which is like used to be the most like stupid fascist journal, is like now <laughs> supposed to be a little bit better, but now they're maybe there's 
now they want to be like the now Biden they're under journal. threat. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah Again, the staff is great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's the thing that there are. So if the if the staff has changed, that's a major thing because they're still drawn from the same places, right? It's still the same sort of universities, the same industries that are producing these uh, magazines and so on. But if if those people think differently, then that that is certainly uh, some kind of shift. Yeah. Well, we wanted to talk a little bit about your own research, um, you know, Asmat, which I think you you sort of use a little bit to to think about, um, you know, this new biography of Edward Said. So we'd love to hear a little bit about that. But um, I was I was interested in um, maybe talking a little bit to start about the poet Rashid Hussein, whose story you begin the Said essay with. And um I thought it'd be fun, actually, if you could just give us a taste of his poetry and say a little bit about who Hussein is um, before we kind of make the connection to his friendship with Saeed. Yeah, I mean, Rashid Hussein is a, a, a quite incredible uh, poet who I should note was from sort of, you know, was a Palestinian citizen of Israel from 48. The same kinds of uh, place and people that you've seen incredible uh, mobilization in the last a uh, few weeks in cities like Haifa and Akka and Lid and so on. So I can read a poem. This poem actually is, you know, uh, I quote a couple lines of it in in that piece. And he, you know, it's 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 like a juvenile poem. He's quite young when he writes this poem, but this is like the extent to which this kind of like uh, Afro-Asian bandung energy is like moving through uh, the left in the world at this time, I think. So he wrote, I am from Asia, the land of blood and hope, of heroes making history, defying decrees, the land of fire, forging furnace of freedom fighters, the birthplace of rebels against God. I am from Asia, rising from ashes, a son of flames. I still remember the day when I stretched out my hands to the world. I am a man, arise, touched me. They were laughing, son of madness, so they named me slave, son of a slave, silence. Today they stand in line to kiss my hand. That's an excerpt, I think, from the larger poem. And it's not the only poem, in fact, that he wrote about Asia or about the third world. If you look at his uh, collections of poetry, he often wrote these sorts of um, romantic kind of poems about uh, the third world. And that was not uncommon. Uh, among Palestinian poets or poets around the world at this time. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, that's something that can, that should not be forgotten. And, you know, we should translate and read this stuff and recite it all the yeah. time, I think. But Hussein, you know, what's interesting about him is he's a little bit older than people like Mahmoud Darwish and stuff, who people don't know or, or forget is also a Palestinian from uh, Israel, right? And uh, or a Palestinian citizen of Israel, born in uh, within those borders, and uh, you know these are some of the most uh, nationalists, the most active um, activists and intellectuals in Palestine then and today. One thing we didn't get into, but was you know some of the stuff that's going on uh, today, another product of that sort of post Oslo. Period, and some of the shifts you see in Palestinian organizing uh, in within historic Palestine after uh, the Second Intifada, for example, there was a thing called 
the Haifa Declaration that was put out by these people, the Mad al-Karmel, the Arab Center for Applied Social Research, which I think also was in 2005 or maybe a little bit later, maybe no six or something. It's quite interesting piece of work because it really comes at a period right when Palestinian citizens of Israel or intellectuals in those circles were starting to shift from understanding themselves and making claims as minorities into making claims, again, as uh, indigenous people and as natives, which was something that had previously been much more important. Um, and, you know, it's a pretty, it's a, it's a very important marker of that period. And, you know, they're like, you know, we need recognition of the Nakba, we need to be recognized as uh, the people of this land and as Arabs, and, you know, there should be a democratic state for all its citizens. Um, but it's also quite sort of like conservative statement in its rhetoric. And you compare that with this manifesto of dignity and hope, which came out a few days ago, uh, written by Palestinians uh, in historic Palestine, for what they were calling the unity intifada with this general strike. This was a quite incredible document, right? They were saying, you know, we're all Palestinians, whether we're in the prison of Oslo or the prison, the citizenship prison of 48, or whether we're in the Jerusalem prison or the Gaza prison, we're all one, right? And so there has been incredible transformation on the part both of uh, the rhetoric and uh, the activity of Palestinians all over the mm-hmm. world. And in part, it draws inevitably from people like Hussein and from uh, the sorts of things that the PLO in its early days, or the Palestinian, you know, PLO was a later sort of formation, Palestinian um, activists and intellectuals revolutionaries um, from 1948 on and even before 48 were drawing upon in terms of the discussion of sort of Palestinian freedom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One thing I wanted to ask was kind of jumping off of this poem um, and, you know, the article you wrote recently, which is a review of the new biography of Edward Said by Timothy Brennan. A lot of people, um, or this, this biography has been kind of um, generating a lot of interesting conversations uh, online. Mm-hmm. You, you kind of contributed to the sort of, I guess, archive now of reviews of this book, um, which I think is gaining a lot of traction because Edward Said was so important, the Palestinian intellectual who passed away in the early 2000s, um, mo- known mostly or most well-known for writing you know, the book Orientalism in the late 70s. And I was reading your essay, which I thought was super fascinating, and I was thinking back on my own experience as someone who was, you know, I was, I was at Columbia at the time, and I, I remember, actually, I saw him in the supermarket once. So his, his presence <laughs> was big. Um, and I was assigned Orientalism over and over, but in classes that had nothing to do with the Middle East. They were East Asia classes, South Asia, Asian American studies. I mean, Tammy, I'm sure you were assigned it or it was discussed in your classes. Um, a lot. Have you read Orientalism? I think once, only once in philosophy class. Okay. Otherwise, never. Yeah. yeah. But and beyond that, like I think Columbia was unique. Yeah, I mean that might be, I was in a bubble, probably. <laughs> um, and more generally, I think it's in the discourse now. People talk about Orientalist stuff in a mm-hmm. sort of like identity politics way, like that. Yes. Instagram mm-hmm. post was Orientalist or something, you know, like. For sure. And I was thinking, like, you know, I think the, every time I read Orientalism or read Edward Said, and I didn't under, really understand what was going on with the context he was writing about, the Arab world, right? And, and Palestine in particular. I was, like, lifting out the basic theory 
of like, you know, West, the West orientalizes the East and so on and so forth. Um, in a way that I wasn't forced to really reckon with like the concrete struggles he was dealing with in his personal or not his personal, you know, his political life. And so Palestine kind of becomes this metaphor for the East or for Asia in the circulation of this critique of Orientalism mm -hmm. in a way that yeah. gets picked up by East Asians, South Asians, Southeast Asians, everyone, right? Definitely. And I wonder if you have thoughts about that, because I think you could say that's actually, there are strengths to that. There's good, that there's some good in there in seeing the sort of abstract, this abstraction of this metaphor into just this like kind of free-floating thing about Orientalism. But obviously there's like a loss that happens when it gets divorced from that context um so i mean something we talk about all the time on the show is like uh you know one of the hosts on the show talks all the time about how asian america is not <laughs> asian american is not a coherent political project it is an it is an identity for sure right but like what does it mean to actually mobilize you know like can 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 um you know the struggles of the palestinian diaspora be comparable to like korean chinese or vietnamese or whatever right like does asia actually mean anything um, anyway, so these are just like some things I was thinking about. And I know you've thought about this in your own research and you probably thought about it while you were writing that review. Do you have thoughts on like this, the uses and abuses, I guess, of Palestine as a metaphor for Orientalism more generally? Like, can that actually be mobilized in a good way? Or is it always like, you know, you're, you kind of like, you kind of like sh frown whenever, whenever you see Orientalism <laughs> stretch too far? Um... Sorry, no, that's yeah. to... no, that's a that's a good question, and I, I have thought a lot about this, and I think it's important um, uh, to move away, maybe from Orientalism for a moment, and think about Palestine, otherwise as it moves uh, metaphorically uh, mm. or as a metaphor between places. And you know, one one thing that's interesting to note, and I've looked at a lot of this material, every meeting of the of the oppressed nations the third world nations the non-aligned afro-asian nations you know there is meeting after meeting in uh the annals of the history of asia and africa and latin america for decades and every single meeting in their in their um records there's always a uh, declaration of support for the freedom for the Palestinian people, the end of Zionist aggression in Palestine, the end of uh, the occupation of historic Palestine, support for the Arabs uh, in the land of Palestine, right? In every single one of these things, till this day, of course, right? Because these some of these formations uh, still exist, right? So it's quite interesting. And of course, other places as, uh, you know, West Africa, is decolonized, certain movements rise up into the ranks and are, are you find declarations in support of these liberation struggles, but then, you know, the nation is created and it falls away. Palestine is this thing uh, that persists, right? Uh, in part because the colonialism there still uh, persists in the most sort of like aggressive and clear way. Mm -hmm. So there is... Uh, material reason that this stuff takes place. But of course, when you see the same thing over and over again, it's like, yeah, the, you know, liberation of Palestine and it, it does get uh, used. And for a lot of people, Palestine can mean this or it could mean that. And people who don't care at all 
about the Palestinian people will use the symbols or the struggle of Palestine and the Palestinian people to make their own uh, arguments, whether it's in uh, Islamic context or in uh, other forms of um, other kinds of movements, right? And I think this is a difficult thing that we need to uh, deal with, right? And of course, it's also a strength, right? It does draw people in, right? And people are um, know about, you know, Palestinian uh, symbols and histories in part because of its circulation in this way. But I think it's just something that needs to be um, dealt with. I think the only way you can deal with this sort of like abuse of images and, and symbols and things is to, is to think about um, narrative and history, right? That's the only way you sort of get out of that problem is to uh, narrate the history concretely and spread those stories yeah. and think, you know, analytically and comparatively in a serious way, which a lot of Palestinians, a lot of other intellectuals have been doing uh, for a long time. But it's something that I think should always be in the forefront. You shouldn't ever let it be simply a symbol. Yeah. Do you think that, um, yeah, I mean, I wonder about, like, does this category of Asia come up a lot uh, when you read about Palestine? Like, do they do they have a lot of, like, hand-wringing about, like, to what extent are people, like, an Asian people or belong with the rest of Asia? And is that the right category? Should we be using the different political categories and so on? I mean, look, in this day, and people like Rashid Hussain or Mahmoud Darwish, etc., everyone was enamored with Asia. Of course, China and India, these were like big brothers of the movement. These were successful struggles uh, against colonialism. And this was a decisive break from the kinds of intellectuals uh, in an earlier period in uh, the history of Arab thought who were much more enamored with Europe and being European, right? Mm. And so that is certainly uh, an important break. And in fact... Uh, this takes place also among Arabs in the United States of a certain generation, right? My friend uh, Soraya Khan has written about Arab-American activism and sort of the shift from, you know, a desire to assimilate and be white and so on. But when they become sort of, when they join this sort of anti-colonial struggle, yeah. Palestinians in the U.S., that, of course, is abandoned in favor of solidarity with third world, including third world peoples in the United States, right? Including uh, the liberation of black people in the United States, right? So this takes place even in the U.S. context, but of course also is happening um, everywhere else. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so what you said about um, Palestine and Palestinianism as a kind of, you know, traveling symbol, would you apply the same critique then to Orientalism? Uh, the book, or the <laughs> I think the, more the concept in the way that Andy was kind of you know querying like, are we oh, how are we using it? How are we abusing it? Yeah, like if you, if if we say like uh, that Hollywood movie was orientalizing and orientalist and so on and so like is that just yeah. is that just vapid at some point? I mean, or? look, just you know, I think it's you know it's there are worse things. I just call that shit racist. You know, I think that's also like sort of like a good kind of like word. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, Orientalism, look, I mean, there's been. I mean, it's a good question. I I, yeah. I have to think about that sort of particular use of it. You saw that TikTok of 
that woman yeah. who was like, you know, like Asians, like Edward Said was Palestinian or whatever. Um, <laughs> uh, I and thought that was tight. You thought you liked that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. She was like an East Asian American or Southeast Asian American kind yeah. of TikTok, whatever, teenager. I'm sure you can find it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. And I don't, I don't know. I saw it on Twitter, I think. And, um, you know, I think, look, Asians in the U.S. have long been down with Palestine. You know what I mean? And is it, be, it maybe it's because they read Orientalism uh, <laughs> or maybe it's because they know, you know, their own sort of like anti-imperial past but like my friend was telling me a story or about like you know in their day in like asian american studies at ucla and they were a graduate student it was like maybe 2004 or something and like alan dershowitz was coming to give a talk oh boy and <laughs> nobody knew and then they heard about it and they were like in the in the lounge and so they just like quickly made signs like asians for palestine and just like posted up outside Aww. right <laughs> and an asian american studies association was the first sort of academic group or maybe even simply the only sort of professional association, the first professional association in the U.S. to, like, pass a BDS uh, mm -hmm. resolution long before anyone else. And, of course, that's only one sort of thing and, and represents one kind of yeah. uh, tactic in a movement. But, you know, Asian Americans have been uh, super down, which is, you know, good. Yeah, that's cool. I didn't, I didn't know that about the history there. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, one, another kind of, now, just kind of thing to throw out there is also I, I remember reading. Uh, I mean, everyone kind of knows these anecdotes of how like Asian means different things in different contexts, and Orientalism is referring to different things. And um, you know, Colleen Lai, at, at uh, Asian American literature professor, studies literature professor at Berkeley, has said, you know, the Orientalism that Edward Said was writing about was about a sort of inf like a group that was considered inferior to Europeans, and that is slightly different than the context of orientalism towards east asians kind of suggesting i think respectfully suggesting right these these are different contexts and these are different moments and so on and maybe the the word of the concept might be get stretched too far and you lose the specificity like you know something we talk about on the show all the time is like a lot of east asian immigrants to the u.s are not in the same position right as the palestinian diaspora and there's a mm -hmm. little bit of a a flattening or erasure that happens if we all kind of um you know if this critique of like Western colonialism or whatever gets kind of used as this blanket category. Um, you know, it ignores like differences within Asia also, right? That's true. I mean, I do think that it's been, it seems like it's a really like generative concept though in Asian American studies to kind of branch off of and critique yeah. and play with. Like one of our listeners, Ellen Song, turned me on to this book by Ann Anlin Cheng, which probably a lot of people know or listening called Ornamentalism which kind of posits this, you know, sort of theory taking off from, you know, um, Orientalism to describe the way that the Asian Asian female body or symbol or, you know, sort of character has been construed um, in the West. And so, yeah, I mean, I think in that, to that extent, it seems like it's, it's, it's kind of a discipline almost, you yeah. know, around this book of, of Saeed. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know if that, I mean, how does that affect your work? Asma, because I know you're making connections in your scholarship between South Asia and the Middle East. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't really write a lot about Orientalism. Uh, this is maybe I used to think about this stuff a lot more, um, <laughs> yeah. which is maybe why now I'm sort of like I don't, I don't know. It's all just I've also become much more sort of like down with whatever people are doing. In part because it's like I understand the conditions 
of yeah. writing today. It's like people like in university are just like trying to keep their jobs or get jobs or whatever. And like, I, you know, I used to like beef really hard with whatever people, uh, some other person said, I'm like, this person just needs to write an article to keep their job. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, um, so, I think that's the right attitude. Yeah. So I care less <laughs> about the stuff that I don't like. So I usually just think about like stuff that I really like. Um, uh, but in terms of Orientalism, I mean, one, one part of like the work that I do, like the like super like, academic kind of work is I look at like Arab uh, intellectuals who are interested in South Asia, uh, especially in the early 20th century, uh, who are like translating, you know, texts from South Asia, like, you know, Sanskritic texts into Arabic, right? And this was, this is a very different kind of thing it's than cool. like what people like are usually interested in, which is translations of European texts, right? right? Um, and so I think looking at it that way kind of gives you a different history of Orientalism because these these Arabs are yeah, reading tons and tons that. of Orientalism, right? They love they're reading yeah. the same like guys that Edward Said is criticizing in Orientalism. They're reading these people and they yeah. they think it's like the best science that's ever been written For on planet sure. Earth. I mean, these are the best books anyone has written. Orientalism was the peak of sort of like human knowledge because it was this kind of like scientific study of these ancient languages. So you have these Arab intellectuals, they were super enthralled with this stuff, but they approached these other Oriental texts in a way, I argue, that was very different from uh, European Orientalists, in part because they often felt some kinship, either because of geography or history or because of anti-colonialism. And they recognize, mm -hmm. well, we have the yeah. British in Palestine, we got British in India. These people are um, linked in this way. And I think that kind of, that's why also, you know, we, I think the internationalism that we see today in Palestine activism uh, is something that has always been there. You know what I mean? And it's just a matter of sort of like getting out of the rut that Oslo produced and uh, producing something much better. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a good that's a good note to end. Um, so Asma, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you so much. It was a real great pleasure. Yeah. Yeah, it's really fun to learn from you. Thank you so much.